the resistance. You know what resistance is? That's when you try to move and there's something in the way. Resistance isn't always a bad thing. You know, if you jumped out of an airplane and pulled that ripcord on the parachute, the one thing you want is resistance because that's what slows it down. Resistance is what causes the wings on an airplane to lift that heavy thing off the ground. It's resistance. Resistance isn't always a negative thing, but it is a negative thing. And we're going to see that in, uh, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, uh, this is a series that we're calling Resistance. And uh, we're looking at three stories that happened in Mark chapter 12 with Jesus where he dealt with resistance. He came to set this, turn this world upside down. He came to deliver people who were in bondage to their sin, in bondage to, to things that, attacks that had come upon them. He came to set people free, to undo the works of the enemy. That was his purpose. And every step of the way, he faced resistance. As the church today attempts to take the good news outside of the doors of the church outside, we are going to face resistance. That's a good thing because it's the resistance that makes people hungry for God. And uh, I'm going to explain that a little bit in this story from Mark chapter 12. I hope you've, you've turned there. <clears throat> By the way, before we read the text and uh, uh, begin to get going, uh, there is a church in our county that has a, a men's Lenten breakfast. It's the First United Methodist Church in Auburn. And they do, uh, I think it's five, maybe six weeks of Lent. I don't remember how long that, that is. Uh, and this year they've asked me to be the speaker the first night they do it, which is this coming Friday morning. So men, if you want to come have a good breakfast, and they always feed you way more than you need. Uh, if you want to go to that, it starts at 6.30 at Auburn First United Methodist Church. I'm going to be speaking, and it sure would be good to look out there and see some friendly faces. So you can encourage me, okay? Mark chapter 12, we're going to start reading in verse 1. And I'm, uh, let's just read verse 1. I think we'll, rather than read the whole thing because it's rather lengthy, 12 verses, let's just read verse 1 because that's the first point, And then we'll go on to the second one. So verse 1, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. <clears throat> a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Jesus is speaking to them in parables. You see, he had just come to Jerusalem. He had just arrived at the temple got thoroughly disgusted with the religious system that he saw had evolved in the temple. Threw the, the tab tables upside down where they were selling doves and making money, making profit in the Lord's house. He got thoroughly disgusted, just, just angry. Rarely do we see Jesus lose his patience, but clearly he lost his patience that day. Very frustrated. Then the leaders of the temple got frustrated with him because he was challenging the system that they had always had. 
He was, he was telling them they needed to do something different, and they were not about to do anything different. They had never done anything different before around there, and they weren't about to let that happen. So in chapter 12, Jesus is responding to these resistant disciples, and he tells a parable. Now, you understand a parable is two things that come alongside. He's, he's telling one simple story that everybody can understand, but it has a hidden meaning. And only certain people can understand the hidden meaning. That's a parable. Every time we read a parable in the New Testament that Jesus is giving, we need to stop and think and read it again and, and say, what could this represent? What could that represent? Because a parable is two things coming alongside. So he just told this parable it's a story everybody can understand. A man built a farm. He planted. That's the first thing he did. He planted a vineyard. Now, it takes a couple years once you plant that vine for it to begin to produce and where it becomes productive. <clears throat> he plants this vineyard. It's the owner who owned the land planted the vines. Then, the second thing, before I get out of order, let me look at my notes, make sure I'm getting this right. First he planted, then he provided. Notice, he dug a, a wine press. Now, a wine press has absolutely no purpose if you don't have grapes. So it starts with planting the vine. So he planted this vineyard, lots of, lots of grape vines that are going to take a while. And then, because he's thinking ahead... He plants, he digs a, a grapevine, they, or a, a wine press, a pit in the ground where they can put the grapes, compress the grapes, they usually they did it with their feet, mashing the grapes, squish the juice out, collect the juice, and then you can, the wine is what you can drink over the next year till the next harvest season comes. Then the third thing he did was he protected it. He planted it. He provided for it, then he protected it. Planted, provided, protected by putting up a watchtower. A watchtower is exactly what you think it means. It's a tower where you can watch. Because if you're going to make an investment in a grape farm, a plantation, if you're going to make an investment, you want to protect it. You don't want to lose your harvest. You want to protect your harvest. And so to keep critters out, he built a fence around it, a hedge, and a watchtower to keep watch. Because you want to protect your investment, protect your harvest from predators, whether they be human or critters. You want to protect the grapes. And then the last thing he did was he arranged for some tenants. You know what tenants are, don't you? They're, they're renters. My grandpa was a tenant farmer his whole life. He never did own his own farm. He always rented a farm. Multiple farms, different farms he would rent. He had to provide the horses in the early days, and then the tractor later. He had to provide the farm equipment. He provided the livestock he provided the seed, he went out into the field, he planted the, the field, and then at harvest time, he would go out and he would harvest it. So 
Sometimes you call uh, rental farmers, you, you, tenant, tenant farmers, sometimes you call them sharecroppers because they get a share of the harvest and the landlord gets a share of the harvest. This is a typical scenario. Back in the day before they had the stock market, people would buy real estate and rent it out. And that's how they made, that was a profitable way to set yourself up for retirement. So we're seeing a very ordinary picture laid out here. But there is a law, sometimes in Bible study we call the law of double reference. In other words, it means this, but it also means that. I think Jesus is talking here about Father God in this parable. He's laying it out. God created everything. He set everything up. He set this world up for success. He set you and I up for success. He set Israel up for success. And in the New Testament, He set the church up for success. He set each of us individually up for success. So it's not just a double reference here. It's a triple reference. It could be referring to Israel, which Jesus is obviously talking about on the surface here. It also could be talking about the church. And it also could be talking about you and I. Because we don't want to lose our harvest, do we? What we invest in, we want it to grow. We expect it to flourish. God expects it to flourish. He sets us up for success. And then the landlord departed. That tells me he must have trusted the people he rented it out to. Otherwise, he would have wanted to stay around and keep his eyes on him. You know, if you don't trust somebody, you want to kind of keep an eye on them. You don't, you don't want them to get too far out there with what you've invested in. So the first blank there is refining, refining the farm. That's what we see in, in verse 1, refining the farm. When God turned it over to the tenants, he set everything up. When he, put, when he told Adam and Eve that to take dominion over all the earth... He set them up for success. He planted all the trees in the garden. He says, you can freely eat of anything you want. Oh, but by the way, there's this one tree you don't dare eat of. Because if you do, you're going to die. I don't want you to die, so don't eat of that tree. He gave them fair warning, but he provided everything they needed for success. Refining the farm. So that takes us to the second part I want us to see, which is in verses 2 through five. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Notice the progression. They, start, they started out by beating a man, then they hit another one on the head, treated him shamefully, then they killed the next one. Notice it's a progression. It gets worse and worse. Once you realize you can get away with something, you tend to want to go just a little bit further with it. 
Here's the second part of the story. It's the rejection of the messengers. He's the landlord. He owns the farm. He owns the plantation. He has a right to a fair share of that. But every time he sends a messenger to collect that fair share, they treat the messenger shamefully. They reject the messengers the landlord sent. Again and again and again, they reject the message, the messengers. Now, the people Jesus is talking to knew very well that Elijah was driven out of the city into the wilderness when he was a prophet. The prophet Isaiah was sawn in half. They all knew that. The prophet Zechariah was stoned to death. They, they would have known this. And John the Baptist, just last week, was beheaded. This was fresh in everybody's mind. Everybody should have known that he was talking about the religious people rejecting the messenger that the landlord sent. Interesting. The landlord provides, and the renters come in and want to take it all. The ones who didn't plant, they didn't dig the wine press, they didn't build, set up the hedge around it, they did not build the watchtower, but they somehow feel like they have a right to take what's been provided for them as their own. Jesus said that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's exactly what these renters, plural, it's plural. It wasn't just one renter, it was plural. Jesus is making a point. It's way beyond one farm. It's, it, it's a whole principle that he's presenting here in this parable. My granddaughter likes me to read a story about the little red hen. How many remember that story? Okay, some of you do. There's a hen who wants to eat bread. So she says, who will help me plant the wheat? Not I, said the dog. Not I, said the cat. Not I, said, said the duck. They all said no. Well, who, after, after it's planted, who will help me harvest it? Who will help me thresh it? Not I, said the dog. Not I, said the cat. Not I, said the duck. And all through the steps of making bread out of the wheat, nobody wanted to help the little red hen. Finally, she gets it all done. Nobody wanted to help bake it. So then she says, who will help me eat the bread? I will, said the dog. I will, said the cat. I will, said the duck. Oh, no, you won't, said the little red hen, and sat down with her own chicks and ate it. You see, there's a principle in that story. If you don't help set it up, you don't have a right to enjoy it once it's matured. This is why all of us at New Hope Christian Center need to get involved in investing in people's lives so that we can enjoy the harvest. But the enemy wants to steal the harvest. He wants to steal your blessing. That's his nature. That's his character. That's what he's made up of. Rejection. But note this. Note this. Note how patient the landlord is. 
He just sends one more messenger. And one more messenger. And one more messenger. And it's, it, it's, it's like we could, we could get angry at God over this. Come on, God, where, where's your justice? We need some justice. You're a just, you say you're a just God, and there's no harvest. You, every, all these messengers keep getting defeated. They keep getting overthrown. That's okay, because God sees the picture all the way through. God sees the end, not just the beginning, which takes us to the next part of the parable as we're seeing it unfolded. Verses 6, 7, and 8. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Notice, Jesus is given this parable before his crucifixion. He knew he was going to die. He kept telling everybody, he's the son, he's the son. And here he makes it clear again, he is the son that the story is talking about. This is the removal of the son, if you want to write that word in your notes, the removal of the son. This is a revelation that he was calling himself the son of the landlord. And I'm reminded of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, who was the heir of his father. And his brothers got jealous of him. And they said, come, let us kill him. They had a plot to kill him except for one brother who intervened and said, let's just sell him as a slave. Then he'll be out of our hair. And and nobody then can accuse us of murder. That's in Genesis 37, 20, if you want to go back and read that. The removal of the son. These tenant farmers are rascals. They are scoundrels. They kill the landlord, the landlord who gave them a chance, the landlord who set them up for success. They killed his son, and they said, he's the heir. Let's kill the son, and then we'll be the heirs. Now, stop and think about that. The only reason killing the son would make them heirs as if the, the landlord was already dead. You see what these guys are thinking? Just because God trusts us, or God is the, the meaning of the parable, just because the landlord trusts us by going to a far country, we assume he's out of the picture. We assume he really doesn't care. And isn't that the state of the world today? Just because the landlord trusts us to take dominion over this earth, that God's not watching how we do it. That God's not watching what we do with it. That God doesn't really care anymore about moral values. God really doesn't care anymore about ethics. God really doesn't care anymore about right versus wrong. We can make up our own mind. We can do what is right in our own sight. We see in this, this is the parable as he's 
as he's talking about it. So they kill the son. This is bitter fruit. Sour grapes. Stealing the harvest. It didn't belong to them. So we think God really doesn't care. So I don't have to ask myself, what's God saying? I just know what I'm saying. Uh, so I want to do what I want. So we reinterpret God and re, we, we reinterpret the word the way we want to. We reinterpret, we, we think, we reinvent God in our own image instead of God shaping us in his image. This is, this is decaffeinated Jesus. Take the life out of it. It's okay if we have a little baby Jesus in the manger at Christmas time, but we don't want him involved in our lives because he might be having something to say we really don't want to hear. So Jesus knew he would be killed. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this story says, and I'm, I'm quoting him, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. I love the way he said that. Wish that I thought of it. Here's the fourth part of the story as it's, we're unpacking it here. Verses 9, 10, and 11. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? In my imagination, I see... A long pause here before he answers it. What would they do? Stop and think about it. What, what, what are the landlords going to do? Everybody pretty well knows what he's going to do. But then he answers it. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. For the Lord has done this, and it is Marvelous in our eyes. The stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone of the new building. The one that the people didn't think had any value. The one that the people couldn't see how it would fit or benefit them. They threw it away. But what's been rejected, what's been discarded, has now been set up. As the cornerstone, everything hinges upon this. How they get that upside down? I have no idea. All right. So obviously, the prophets were the messengers. In the New Testament, it would be pastors are the messengers of God that were rejected, mistreated because people didn't want to hear what they were, what what they were hearing. Finally, the Son comes. We know who that is. That's Jesus. Finally, Jesus comes. They reject him. They kill him. They think they've finally won. They think the story's over. But it's not over because on the third day, he rises from the dead so that we could have life, so that we could have hope. This is good news, church. So what's the landlord going to do with the tenants? 
who have been given responsibility and who have been trusted in, and they drop the ball. What's he going to do? He's going to come. He's going to clean them out. They're going to be removed. And here's the good news. He's going to put new tenants in their place. God hasn't become discouraged or disheartened with stubborn people. He just removes them from their office and puts another one in place. I want to I be the new tenant. I want to step into this blessing, don't you? God's always removing the old that won't be faithful and putting the new in place. I want to I be a part of that. I want you to be a part of that. I don't want to lose my harvest You don't want to lose your harvest. What we've invested in, we deserve to have a return. But the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. So I don't think we're talking about people, tenants. We're talking about spiritual powers influencing the people. Jesus was never against people. He was against the demonic influences in their life that were holding them back. That's what he was against. So these guys were cast out and new were put in place. God never lost hope. He is patient, patient, patient. And you know, I've learned he's patient with people like us. So patient. Let, uh, he will let us reject him. He will let us thumb our nose at him. He will let us do our thing. He is just so patient because he's not willing that any perish, but all come to the saving faith. And if you're a person who you, you, you feel like you've not been a good renter, you've not been a good tenant, you've kind of messed up along the way, you need to know God loves you, and he's got a wonderful plan for your life. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. This is good news. So Jesus knew when he told the story. He knew that God's plan was to bring justice out of injustice. He knew that as he's telling the story. Which takes us to the final point I want to point out. Verse verse 12. Then the chief priests, the parable is over by the way. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Jesus just told a parable about resistance. And what's the next thing that happens? Resistance. He knew what was going to happen. He knew who he was talking to. And he got the very thing that he was talking about. The fulfillment of the parable is right here in verse 12. But I want to share some good news for you. One thing the Lord showed me just this morning when I was in prayer time with Anita this morning and the other folks that were in there. I say with Anita because she was leading the thing. I was... I said, Lord, my weakest point is this last one. I want to send people away with something positive, and that's my weakest point. And Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to read, read that last verse again, and I'm expecting you to show me something out of that. And I read through it again, and you know what popped out of me? The hindrance 
to the resistance was the crowd. Did you catch that? And let me read that again because I think this is, this is the Lord speaking to us. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left them and went away. They left Jesus alone. They backed off on their resistance because of the crowd. Oh, Lord, make me a part of the crowd. You see, there's a, there's a, a synergy. There's a spiritual synergy that happens when God's people get together. We get on the same page. We're in agreement. We want to move forward together. There's something that happens. If, if we have, if the, the church is fragmented, fragmented with a, a dozen people in this church and 15 people in that church and all the money in the, in the church goes towards, towards the facility and they don't have any money for ministry, Satan's not threatened by that. What he's threatened by is when you and I will get together and we'll be in agreement and we decide we want to move forward together. We become the crowd that intimidates the enemy. So come on and join me. Let's be a part of the crowd. Amen? Let's stand together. The Bible says, where sin abounds... Grace does that much more abound. You see this? Where sin abounds, grace is that much more. Sin is, is the resistance to the good news. And where there's plenty of sin, there's plenty of grace. So the more resistance there is, the more grace is released. You and I need to be people of grace. Always giving hope to someone else. And always remembering who the landlord is, that he set us up for success. He gave us all the tools that we need to be successful at what God's called us to be. Let's not forget who he is, and remember, he deserves a share, a share of the harvest. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now. Father, because each of us have our own farm, we've got our own plantation, and you've set us up for success. And Father, sometimes we listen to the voice of the world and it discourages us and we forget that if we will apply your values, your principles, we will succeed. And help us, God, in the process to never forget who it was that set us up for this success. It was you. Help us to always remember that. Make us productive tenant farmers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've got some, some uh, prayer partners up front. They're, they call them that because they can agree with you. If you have a prayer request, bring it to them. They want to partner with you and see God bring breakthroughs and bring harvest in your life. Go with God. He loves you.